Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Harper Perennial, publisher of the novel Skinny by Diana Speckler. Skinny tells the story of 26-year-old Gray Lockman, who, in the aftermath of her father's death, finds herself compulsively eating. Desperate to stop binging, she abandons her life in New York City for a job at a southern weight loss camp, and there she is confronted by a captivating mystery and a deep family secret. Bookslut says it's rare to read well-written fiction about matters of weight. Skinny is interesting because it speaks well to how inescapable our bodies really are. Self Magazine calls it a smart, thought-provoking, and hilarious exploration of body image, weight loss, and the lengths we go in search of a perfect body. Speckler does a masterful job at character development. And Publishers Weekly says Speckler's latest succeeds in lovingly detailing the agony of self-loathing. That's skinny. It's by Diana Speckler. It's available now from Harper Perennial. It's a book. You can read it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. This is the show. Thank you very much for tuning in. Today, I'm going to be talking with Diana Speckler, the author of Skinny, published by Harper Perennial, the sponsor for today's show. So Diana basically owns this one. This is her program. She and I are going to be discussing body stuff, body image stuff, how people feel about their bodies, my issues, her issues, people's issues in general with what they want to do with and to their bodies. So stay tuned. That's coming up in just a minute. Before I get there, I want to discuss uh, collaboration and rejection and maybe a little bit of nostalgia. I spent uh, early, you know, the early portion of today looking through some old papers of mine. I do this with increasing frequency. I'm fascinated by it because I collected a huge amount of letters and emails and notes and whatnot during my 20s. I was a real pack rat. I was extremely disciplined about it. And so I was going back through old writing stuff, trying to kind of jar things in my brain and get myself going, working on today's projects. And a couple of things that sort of surfaced in my head, collaboration and rejection. I don't tend to collaborate a lot when it comes to creative work. 
I'm not good at it. It doesn't work well for me. I think that's sort of why I write, you know, fiction and why I'm a writer in general. I think that's common. People who are writing books don't tend to want to collaborate. They don't tend to be good at it. They want to live in their own world and control their own show and be autonomous creatively. But I did collaborate on something back in the day. This was a few years ago when my wife and I were just starting to date. And those are, uh, you know, those, those great early days when you're just getting to know each other and things are going well. And, uh, you know, my wife is not a writer by trade, though I suspect she could be. Uh, she's a really funny person. She's a wit. And uh, she's probably the funniest person I know. And so back in the day, I guess she and I were sitting around and we were talking and we were discussing Norman Rockwell. We were talking about Norman Rockwell paintings and the all-Americanness of them, the, uh, the sort of surreal purity of them, the weirdness of that. And then, of course, because we were trying to be funny, we thought, you know, wouldn't it be great to turn that on its head and make, you know, Norman Rockwell into this demented freak and, and like kind of a pervert, you know? So like, what would his paintings be like if that were the case? You know, like they would still look the same. The aesthetic would be the same. But like, what would the, you know, what would be the names of some Norman Rockwell paintings if like, you know, he was this kind of freaky dude and let's say his name was Norman Cockwell. So we came up with this list uh, and we submitted it to McSweeney's internet tendency and we got a, a swift rejection via email within like 24 hours and it was kind of like a form letter. I think it was a form letter, but there was like a personal addendum at the end of it where the guy basically told us that we were lewd and juvenile uh, and, and kind of funny. So we, the, the name of the list was Norman Rockwell paintings we might have seen had Norman Rockwell gone by the name Norman Cockwell. So like here are the names of some of these paintings if you can try to imagine them in the inimitable Norman Rockwell visual style. So here are the names of these paintings. Santa's Sack, Two-Hand Touch, The Doctor is In, The Headmaster, Pitching a Tent, Sundown at the Rectory, uh, Where the Bathing Suit Goes, The Scoutmaster's Divining Rod, Saturday Evening, post-coitus. And, uh, you know, there's a lot more I could go on. I don't know. It, it was really funny to us at the time. I'm not sure if it plays well, uh, now or if it ever did, but we were rejected for that. That's part of the process. That was something that I collaborated on with my wife. That might be the only piece of writing we've ever actually officially collaborated on. And so I was glad to find it. It makes me laugh anyway. It brings back good memories. Uh, and then, you know, thinking more about rejection, I, I want to turn now to a, uh, a more personal story of rejection, a, a romantic rejection that occurred way back in the day when I was in fifth grade. And uh, this was quite, you know, quite some time ago now. And, you know, back in those days, back at that age, uh, in my era, I can't believe how much I'm dating myself, but in my era, you know, you went with people. You asked a girl to go with you. So in fifth grade, I guess this is maybe one of my first girlfriends, if not the first girlfriend that I ever had. I asked her to go with me. Or uh, actually, I don't think I asked her. I think I probably had, I think in those days you had somebody else ask for you. It's like one of your buddies essentially served as your emissary and he asked her or called her up and it was all handled through second parties. But uh, anyway, uh, Julie and I were going together and, uh, and then something happened. So I'm going to, I'm going to read you a letter that I wrote. This is part of a column, a kind of a, a funny column that I used to write on my blog and on the nervous breakdown called open letters to individuals who have somehow had an impact on my life. 
So I'm going to read you this letter that I wrote to Julie, you know, many years later, sort of uh, in in an effort to be funny, but also to reflect. And, uh, you know, since there is some heartbreak here involved, I thought that I would bring some music into the equation to sort of add some, some effect. So here goes. Dear Julie, I've actually written about you before. We dated briefly in the fifth grade, and on January 28th, 1986, you broke up with me. We were sitting in the presentation area adjacent to the library, and we had just finished watching the space shuttle Challenger explode. It ascended from the launch pad at Cape Canaveral, and 73 seconds later, the whole thing went up in a massive fireball, killing everyone aboard. The room was silent, and our teachers started crying, and then your friend Mary Ann walked over to me and handed me a note that said, Hey, you're dumped. I'm not the type to hold a grudge or anything, but I always felt like that was really insensitive timing. Cordially, Brad Listy. So, that's a letter that I wrote to Julie. That's a moment that actually happened. She dumped me within moments, mere minutes, mere seconds of the, uh, the Space Shuttle Challenger tragedy unfolding in real time on live television at my elementary school. So that's sort of a funny yet uh, heartbreaking and, and ultimately, uh, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a funny heartbreaking story, but it's, you know, it happened at a tragic moment. I just find it interesting. And uh, I wanted to share it here for some reason. So there's that. And then the last thing that occurs to me or the last thing that uh, I, I stumbled across today, which is sort of funny, is that I wrote down uh, a conversation that my wife and I had back in the early days of our relationship when we were dating. And the reason why it caught my eye is because of this story coming out of Ohio uh, several days ago. You know what I'm talking about. This private zoo, all these animals getting loose, this guy shooting himself. I mean, it's just this terrible story. All these animals getting uh, killed and this, pri- I don't know, zoos in general, just, I don't like them. They freak me out. And so uh, I come across this uh, this conversation that my my uh, wife and I had back when we were dating. And uh, somehow, I guess we were sitting around watching Animal Planet. And we got into this discussion about Bigfoot because we were watching a documentary about Bigfoot. And we started like thinking about what it would be like if you were like a very tall, very large man, like a basketball player, like an NBA like level athlete and you're like six foot eight. And what happens if you get your hands on a really good Bigfoot suit? Like the fun that you could have, like the adrenaline rush that that would be to go out into the woods and to start running around. Like you could have some real fun. It could be a very funny and very, uh, you know, pretty, pretty intense prank. Like if, you know, there's like a cub scout troop out in the woods camping and all of a sudden you come just like sprinting through the woods and jumping over, tree stumps and you know you know what i'm saying like it could get interesting and so the conversation as i had had written it down uh, i guess it then devolved into like what happens if you're out in the woods dressed in this suit running around and you encounter uh, another animal like a larger animal like a bear and that animal wants to mate with you and you know this of course was funny somehow to us and uh, i think ultimately we decided that in that instance you know what choice do you really have Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, 
based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, you know, obviously this is getting off into, you know, uh, unrelated territory from uh, the task at hand here. So I'm going to try to reel it back in take us back in the direction of books and literature and things more dignified. Uh, my conversation here with Diana Speckler is now going to unfold. Again, she's the author of Skinny. It's a novel, and uh, I hope you enjoy what she has to say. So are you still going? Are you still out there uh, doing readings and promoting? or is it- Yeah, I mean, you know, being in New York makes it easier. I mean, you can sort of tour without ever leaving home. I, I did a little bit of traveling in the beginning, but there's so many reading series here that uh, I've been able to do a bunch of events just around the New York, New Jersey area. You're like Brooklyn, you're hitting all the different books. I mean, how many different bookstores are you talking? Like, what's the, what's the network? Uh, not even bookstores. I've only read in, I don't I haven't read in many bookstores, but the reading series here are often in bars. So you basically, you, you're working the bar scene. Yeah, what, one could say that, and, working the bar scene. <laughs> well, and what about I'm loath to describe it that way because I was a cocktail waitress for so many years. But um, So I, I like to think of myself as not working the bar scene anymore, but I, I suppose. Where did you work? <laughs> like what kind of bars were you working at? The last job I had... Um, which ended about a year and a half ago, was at a tequila bar in Midtown Manhattan, and that was I was working there for three years, and I I was drinking so much tequila I could take a tequila shot without making a face. Jesus. How's that? Yeah. What's your tequila? Did you have like a favorite? I mean, were you, did you become pretty pretty? Uh, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of tequilas. I have a buddy who's really into it. And, uh, yeah, I um, I like I like the Blancos, and my favorite was just a very basic one. It was just Herodora Silver. Similar, it's similar to Patron, but I think it's better. Okay, good to know. Good to know. And then you quit that once the book sold, or once you did you start doing other things in oh, addition? No, I was still working there um, all through the Who by Fire release. Um, I didn't quit. I got fired. Oh, really? Yeah. How did that go down? Well, and I had never before been fired from a job. It was my first time. Um, I don't know why I felt like I had to throw that in. I just got insecure for a second. (laughs) Um, But what happened was, uh, it was this, it was, it had been this one bar for a long time. And then, um, uh, it, it basically, one of our customers bought it. 
So he changed everything up. He changed the name. It stopped being a tequila bar. It just became a sort of generic midtown bar. And um, he promised to keep all the staff on, but obviously that never works. And and we were all very unhappy. He was unhappy. All the girls were unhappy um, because of all the changes. You know how, you know, everyone's resistant to change, even if it's like the bar is changing, like something that's not a very big deal feels like a big deal just because it's changed. So, um, and also he was an asshole. Am I allowed to say that on your podcast? Yeah, no, we, 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 we invite swearing. We like it. Go ahead. Okay. So, um, and we didn't get along very well. Like I didn't like him. He didn't like me. He was constantly drunk. And finally one day he just called me and told me that he knew that I thought he was an asshole. And so he had to let me go. And I said, how did you know that? And he said, somebody told him. (laughs) Interesting. So somebody ratted you out. Yeah. Somebody ratted me out. I don't know who. Unbelievable. Now this guy was a regular customer. So he would come in and get loaded at your bar. And then he decided that he liked it so much that he bought the place. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. And was this like a high-end kind of tequila bar type situation? Or what kind of bar are we talking about? It wasn't high-end at all. It was, it was dim and small and, um, and a little bit dusty. And all of the decor um, had a theme. The theme was the Day of the Dead and, and you know, that Mexican holiday. And uh, so it was, a, it, was, it was a little bit, like, it was a, sort of a weird place. And kind of a bastion in Midtown, because in that area of Midtown, there aren't a lot of good bars. Um, So it was a fun place, but it certainly wasn't high end. And then what happens after you get fired? So you get, you know, you get fired, you walk out, and then what is, what is it? Well, I didn't have to walk out because he called me on the phone. So there was, there was, there were no histrionics. Um, And then... I thought, you know, I, I actually might be okay not getting another bar job, which scared me because I've been working on and off in bars for 13 years, and I thought, I mean, since I was 17. And so I thought, um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to survive without it. You get really addicted. I don't know if you've ever worked in, in service, but you get really addicted because you you walk out with these wads of cash, and you don't have to think about the job. I mean, Theoretically, you don't have to think about the job in between shifts, which is very different from teaching. Because teaching, you're you're in the classroom a very short amount of time, and then you you know outside of the classroom, you're still thinking about the job constantly. Cause you're grading papers, you're prepping, and that was the other way that I was making money was teaching. So I liked um, just going into work and leaving with cash and not having to think about it again until the next shift. But well, that's good for writing too. You get to you get to kind of save your brain a bit. You don't have to exactly. Like- Yes, if there wasn't so much tequila involved. (laughs) So were you were you drink? I mean, were you drinking pretty heavily on these jobs? I feel like when you work in bars and and people I know who've worked in restaurants for years and years, like there's sort of a a pretty heavy drinking culture among the people who work there, like after after hours and whatnot. Oh, I mean during hours. Yeah. Yeah. So so you're doing shots of tequila. we We were just drunk all the time, you know. Because you're dealing with drunk people. So think about it. Like, how do you deal with drunk people sober? And not only deal with them, but serve them. You have to serve them. You have to submit to them and smile at them and think that they're funny. You know, so. So it's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. I'm realizing talking about it, I must be a little bit 
bitter about this job, about this line of work. But there were a lot of things I liked about it, too. It could be really fun, but there, it was, it's, it's kind of grueling. I mean, it's a lot of partying. Well, sure. And yeah. I mean, all that, all that, I mean, is all the kindness that I, you, you get from a, a waitress or a waiter at a, in a bar or a bartender, like all yeah, of it is bro, bullshit. they're not hitting on you, okay? No. Those I mean, girls are not hitting on you. That's it. Yeah, they want nothing to do with me. They don't think my jokes <laughs> are funny. They want your money. Ugh. Well, you know, I used to right. deliver, I delivered pizzas. That was my thing. And, uh, and loved it. <laughs> still, it's still, to this day, the, the job that I've enjoyed the most. And that probably includes writing. I loved delivering pizzas because... <laughs> Everyone loves what to. What did you like about delivering pizzas? Well, first of all, I, I mean, I really thought about this because you have time when you're on the road. But first of all, uh, you don't have to deal with your boss very much because you're out on the road. As long as you're fast and you get the pizzas to the house on time, you're doing your job. Secondly, you're you're able to listen to music. You're able to think. You're in your car. It's like this self-contained world. And then third, you show up at the people's house, and as long as you're there on time, they're happy to see you. You're bringing them pizza. And, uh, I guess the fourth thing would be that they open their door and you get this vignette of their life. You know, they open their door and you get this flash of what their life is like. You can see what's in their living room. You can see what kind of dog they have. You can see what their house smells like. Uh, you know, all that kind of stuff was really fascinating to me. And then I was delivering in Boulder, which is a college town. So, you know, you would, you would get all college town. That was your college town too. Yeah, I wonder if you ever delivered me a pizza. Entirely Which possible. Which pizza place were you working at? Uh, I did some time at Mountain Mike's, and then I did Mad Mushroom. For <laughs> Mad Mushroom was the place you could call and say, I'm tripping my face off, and they would give you a free pizza? Entirely possible. Entirely possible. <laughs> Wait, which, years were, which years were you doing this? This was like 93 through 97. I mean, I was there from 97 to 01, so, and my freshman year was the year I was ordering a lot of pizzas. What dorm were you in? Sewell. Yeah, that's where I was in. That's so weird. I lived down in the pit in Sewell. We lived in the same dormitory. But I'm sure, I mean, I was there all the time, and, uh, you know, it was all over town, but I just, I really enjoyed it, and it was perfect for that, for me at that time, and uh, it was, it, it kind of meshed well with writing, or, you know, thinking about writing, and. It was nice to listen to music, and I don't know. I just liked it. It was good. And then, like you say, you get addicted to walking out of there at the end of the night with this big wad of cash. Yeah, there's um, there's definitely something intoxicating about that. I would imagine there's also something appealing about spending many of your working hours in your own car, not dealing with a boss, Precisely. not dealing with anybody except, you know, you're just back and forth between the pizza place and people's homes. Yeah, no, it's like the least amount of dealing with people as possible, I think, was probably yeah. my attraction to it. Yeah. So now it's you're. Does sound good. So now you're teaching, um, you know, in New York, and you're also, what is it, on the Stanford University online writing program? Is that correct? Yeah, that starts, that starts this fall. I'm going to be teaching the novel for Stanford's online writing school. Okay, well, yeah, and then as far as like the in class teaching stuff, that's happening in New York at. Yes. Yeah. I teach for the Gotham Writers Workshop. I also teach a creative writing class at a fashion college. And wait a minute, I... wait a minute, wait a minute. What, at a fashion <laughs> college? Yeah, there's a fashion college called the Laboratory Institute of Merchandising. And they employ me to teach a creative writing elective. And what are your students like? 
they're very fashion conscious. <laughs> and sometimes I ask them for advice. Um, they don't always love creative writing, but I don't, I'm not really sure why they take the classes. Some of them like it, I guess, but most of them, you know, they, they go on. This is a school for the business of fashion. So they, um, they go on to do merchandising and stuff like that. So how is this even part of the curriculum? Uh, That seems insane to me. (laughs) It's an elective. It's an elective. And so are these people like writing short stories about like runway models and, you know. They write, I have them write short stories and essays. And they they seem to do better with the nonfiction part of the class. Fiction, um, uh, they don't seem to love the fiction so much. (laughs) So it's the the fashion college and then where else? And the Gotham Writers Workshop and also I have private students. Gotcha. Now, do you like, yeah. do you like to teach? Do you, I mean, do you enjoy it or is it something you're doing for money? Be honest. Um, both. I, I like it. I like being in the classroom. I, I dislike the prep. I dislike reading the papers. It's very time consuming, but, um, I do, I love being in the classroom. I love, uh, working with students, particularly adult students. You know, I, I mean, Gotham is adult education, so it's, People who have full-time jobs sometimes have families. They're of all ages, all walks of life, and they dedicate. I mean, they they just decide. You know, I really want to write. It's something that usually it's it's something they've always wanted to do but never did. So they take the class. They they make the time commitment, and it's three hours a week for ten weeks, and they're writing a lot. And um, for my class, they're writing novels and reading each other's novels. So it's, I mean, I think it's really beautiful. Yeah, no, that's cool. And I mean, like, what kind of class size are we talking? Is it 15 people, 20? They cap it at 14. Yeah, that's good. Because I remember when I was teaching, I was teaching, you know, classes of 30, 35. And I would come... What subject was it? uh, It was creative writing. I mean, I was teaching creative writing and I was also teaching English comp. And I would come home Mm -hmm. and, you know, that that stack of papers to grade, that's a bear. That was the part of it that, that... I found the least appealing. Yes, that's tough. Well, let's talk about Skinny. Uh, you know, I'm, okay. I'm particularly fascinated with uh, the research, the field research that you did. And we touched on this when your book was, um, you know, part of the TMB book club and we did our online chat. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of when authors go out and do this sort of field research um, because I think that there's something, uh, there's something about that that, that is – or how should I put this? I feel like it's something that doesn't happen often enough because authors are so used to kind of tucking themselves away in their, their little office and writing or wherever they work. And not often enough do we get out into the world and get our hands dirty. And mm-hmm. so I sort of think that, I mean, how, what was your experience of it going down? I mean, you worked at a weight loss camp, correct? Yeah, I did. And I, I want to say, I want to respond to um, to that point that a lot of novelists don't research. Um Honestly, I love research. I, I really do. But largely, I do it because my knowledge base feels very limited. For example, I don't think I could ever write a historical novel because I, I have such a limited understanding of, of history and context. And um, I think that a lot of that comes from just not having paid attention in high school. But, you know, the time when everybody else was sort of building their foundation, I don't know what I was doing, but I was not paying attention. So 
um, I don't know about very much unless I experience it. And most of what I experience, I don't think is interesting enough to put in a book. So the first novel I wrote was about yeshiva life in Israel, and that also involved a lot of research, including going to Israel, hanging out in yeshivas, that kind of thing. I don't even know what um, that is. I mean, pardon me for being uh, ignorant, but what's a, what's a yeshiva? Um, yeshiva, I don't think you're ignorant. I think you're an anti-Semite. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so they're, they're um, basically these centers for the study of Jewish texts, and um, religious Jewish men live in these places. And, I mean, again, it's like, it's, I love writing about insular worlds, obviously. I mean, my second book was about a weight loss camp. So um, that, that's what yeshiva is. Okay. So yeah. it's, it's just, Jew, it's like Jewish male scholars reading old Jewish texts, correct? Basically, and, and living together and studying, studying and living. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, so um, I, I, I do think that a lot of uh, writers, it seems to me that a lot of writers, a lot of novelists are kind of, renaissance men and women and know a lot of things and have a lot of areas of interest and my interest has always just been writing and I don't have a whole lot going on beyond that I don't know very much about stuff like I've never been good at trivia for example um and I'm I mean I I find that pretty shameful so uh, before I start congratulating myself for all the research I've done, I, I should say that were I, I mean, if I if I were more knowledgeable, I probably wouldn't do all this research. But considering my limitations, um, you know, I also I think my my imagination is somewhat limited because I thought I'd love to I would love to write a book about weight loss camp or set at a weight loss camp, but. And I even went to summer camp as a kid, but I still felt as though I wouldn't accurately depict a weight loss camp unless I actually spent significant time at one. So I went to work at one for 10 weeks. So you just applied and, you just applied, and, and they took you? Well, it wasn't that easy because I actually emailed every weight loss camp in the country, but I didn't want to tell them why I was coming. The reason I was coming was... I wanted to write this book, but I didn't want anyone to know that because I wanted—I liked this idea of myself as being this sort of undercover anthropologist <laughs> or something. Um, and so I just said I wanted to teach creative writing, and I said I thought it would be cathartic for the kids to at least learn how to journal. And nobody wanted to hire me as, you know, nobody wanted to hire a creative writing teacher at a weight loss camp. So, uh, so okay, so, that, reason, so one, let me stop you here. They're, they're hiring creative writing teachers at fashion colleges. But they're not they're not hiring creative writing teachers at weight loss camps where these kids are like holding all of this like angst and pain inside and desperately need to find some form of self expression. Look, I agree with you. You know, that was my point. But unfortunately in this country most weight loss efforts are solely based on fitness and nutrition and the psychological component and you know, gets sort of ignored. So Right. No one hired me, except one guy. One guy did at a camp in North Carolina. So I went, and I I went out there for 10 weeks, and he had told me I was going to teach creative writing, but when I got there, um, he told me I was going to teach water aerobics. So that was a surprise. <laughs> and? And 
I taught water aerobics, and I got really good at it. So, but you had never taught water. You had never taught. I don't know if I got good at it. What's that? You never taught water aerobics before. Well, I didn't know what water aerobics was, and I'm still I'm still fuzzy on the details of what water aerobics is. And I was picturing something like synchronized swimming, so I was actually choreographing dances, which was absurd. And because uh, I didn't know how to dance or to do synchronized swimming, and I also didn't have any music, but that was what I started doing. And then eventually, it just um, became sort of natural to me, and. I was dancing with the kids in the pool, and it was really fun. And so I started to believe I was giving these kids a fantastic water aerobics education. But um, I guess, uh, you know, <laughs> in, in truth, I don't, I don't really know what I was doing. <laughs> but, I, you know, I figured, why is we're moving? This is good. Well, yeah, no, get them, get them moving, get them in the water, and like, I mean, it seems yeah. like it seems like a little bit difficult when these kids are obviously uh, they have like body shame and stuff, correct? And then you're getting them into swimsuits, which can't be easy. Yeah, so that was really interesting too. Um, there were, of course, you know, there was there was a kid or two who wouldn't ever take off her t-shirt all summer, but for the most part, because everybody's losing weight at camp, um, I mean, everyone's losing weight every week, and the first week in particular like a ton of water weight comes off and the, the weight loss is extreme. So that feeling of losing weight was giving them more confidence. So very quickly, they were in bikinis. They didn't care. They didn't care. See, I'm nope. like I'm like a relatively thin person and like I care. Like I wear a t- I want to wear a t-shirt, you know, like <laughs> I've got problems. You can wear a t-shirt. I know, but it's just like, I, I feel like I have, like I think I might have extreme views about this, but it's like in daylight, people taking their shirts off and getting into bathing suits. It's like, I feel like there's a very small percentage of the human population that really looks good half naked or fully naked in daylight. I mean, is that, a, is that extreme? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, day, daylight's rough. Um, bathing suits are also rough. Ugh. I mean, I think often people look better naked than they do in a bathing suit, right? Probably. I don't know. I just, I just feel like I have like a – I rationalize my own uh, neurosis to myself by saying that I'm self-aware enough to know my limitations. Do you know what I'm saying? Nobody well, needs to see that. <laughs> you might try this summer just – a little self tanner. Maybe, yeah. I'll, I'll do. I'll try to use some bronzer. Is that right? Is am I using that terminology correctly? <laughs> I don't know. I think bronzer is makeup, but uh, oh, okay. you could get you can get that lotion that has a little tint in it, and that might make you feel more confident. Okay. Well, no, and like this is the because other thing. Because I think the broad daylight issue is is about pastiness. It's yeah. It's about you know. That's the thing. I'm pasty. I have freckles. Like I just I'm not made for that. And then you see some people, and they're these olive skinned and they have these, you know, just this natural physique or whatever. And it's like, okay, well, these are the people who are meant to be on the beach. Like these are the human beings who are destined for this. But so, that's really a shame that we think that way because why shouldn't everybody get to enjoy the beach? You know, but then there, but then there's the idea that like, why should we, like, I feel like it's compulsory to enjoy the beach, sort of like it's compulsory to enjoy dancing. And if somehow you don't enjoy the beach or you don't enjoy dancing, it's like you're fun impaired. Do you know what I'm saying? There are certain activities that it's like, wait, you know. Yeah, you're I not feel a- that way about Halloween. Okay, me too. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah, I, I, know, I know what you're saying. Um, yeah, and, you know, a lot of those things that we're supposed to enjoy strike me as 
colossal waste of time. And I'm not just saying that as a defense mechanism because I also do, I also will admit that dancing makes me feel awkward. But when I see people playing Frisbee, for example, I don't know how they avoid drowning in self-loathing. <laughs> Frisbee. I see. I can get into Frisbee. You know, I, can, I do enjoy a game of Frisbee. <laughs> It's just all to each to each their own, but like specifically with yeah. issues with issues of weight, because like I find this a very fascinating topic, and I find it like I'm one of those people who pays uh, careful attention to stories in the news regarding the obesity epidemic in the United States, which this bothers me, and like food the the lack of uh, respect paid to just basic food science bothers me, and yeah. I get physically uncomfortable when I see a super overweight person eating really bad food or, or excess amounts of food that makes me physically anxious. Like what's happening there? Like, what do you think? What do you think it, that's interesting because I don't think you're alone in that, but what do you think it is that makes you feel that way? If you could sort of peel away the layers, I think, I think, your it, discomfort? well, I think it's just, I think it's knowing like, Oh my, it's like watching somebody kill themselves. You know, that's how it feels to me. It's like, Oh my God. And then, I also, like, I, I, I empathize, uh, I don't know if empathize is maybe the right word, but I, I imagine, like, what's it like to carry all that? Oh, my God, it just, I feel terrible. You know, it just makes me feel bad. And I worry about them, and I want to, like, slap the food out of their hand and just be like, you know, I get all of those feelings that run through my mind. And, you know, I don't want to be judgmental. I don't want to be mean. But uh, there's a part of me that just wants to be like, stop, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's a tough one for me. Really? Do you feel that way when you see people smoking? Yeah, yeah. I mean, but to a lesser extent, I guess. You know, and that's weird. And I'm a you know former smoker who sneaks one every once in a while. So maybe you know I'm a, yeah. hypocr I'm a hypocrite too, I guess. But um, yeah, if I, if I see somebody, um, I don't know. If I see somebody smoking and then coughing, or you can tell that they're like they have a cold and they're smoking. Sure, you know. But uh, it depends. It's not you know. I guess there's something so overtly unhealthy about like really extreme obesity uh, in particular that, you know, somebody can be, I know this from a personal standpoint that you can be a relatively casual smoker who has like one or two a week and exercises every day. But if you're 450 pounds, I mean, there's really no way to kind of square that. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to me because people's reactions to obesity are really strong and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of of the mind that, uh, it's, it's because, um, it's sort of like seeing someone cry. It feels it's uncomfortable. Yes. Um, it feels like seeing somebody with a lot of extra weight on them. It feels like they can't hide the things that we hide. Right, exactly. It's like it's like and, the, it's like a vice that you cannot hide from people. It, it's it's out there, right? And so, and, and it's funny. I mean, it's interesting to me that that makes people so uncomfortable because, I mean, I think it makes people uncomfortable to see themselves a lot of the time, and I think that that's what that is. Yeah, it's so, kind of a it's kind of a weird funhouse mirror. That's a good point. So, I mean, like, what am I seeing? I mean, it's like I guess that's like a, a funhouse mirror for like my own stuff. And I'm seeing these people. Yeah, well, I mean, not to turn this too much into a therapy session, but I'm willing right. to go there. Yeah, um, that's all right. What do you, I mean, 
you know, you you said it makes you uncomfortable. It makes you want to slap the food out of their hand, and it also makes you feel bad for them. Well, no, it's like right? it's like it's like yeah. I mean, in an extreme case, if you're seeing like I remember being at a football game. I was at a uh, Chargers Colts game, and I'm sitting there. And there is, there is a man who is, when I say large, like, I, I cannot describe to you how big this guy was. Like, he was, he had to have been over 400 pounds. And we were sitting in these seats, and this guy literally came down to his seat with, like, five or six hamburgers and a giant beer. And I'm thinking, like, see, what runs through my mind is heart attack. What one, What runs through my mind is me... Uh, giving mouth to mouth to this person. Like that's the sort of shit that goes through my head. I'm not even kidding you. And so when I say slap the food out of their hand, I mean, I, that, that's sort of joking. I don't want to sound too extreme about it, but in that instance, it's like, dear God, man, you're going to die. Like, that's what I'm thinking. Uh, but okay. But, that, but there's more to it than that, because why do you care if that stranger dies? You have to go a little deeper. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's, it's, and I guess I feel the same way about somebody who's like shooting up or, um, you know, who's just being really self-destructive. And I think it's in any context. But again, most of the time, I don't see the self-destructive behavior of people who are engaged in, like, serious drug abuse or um, whatever the case may be because it's much easier to conceal. And in this particular instance, it was just watching this guy do it in public. It would be like if you're at the, the Chargers game and the guy next to you pulls out a syringe and shoots up, you know? Right. Well, and even if he wasn't eating, he's not able to hide it because it's his body. Yeah. It's a tough um, one. Which, that's inter- I mean, it's interesting. I, I think that we've all done self-destructive things and, and hidden those things. Sure. You know, and it's very difficult. I mean, for example, I mean, you're married now and you have a baby, but think to before that, think of all the phone calls you've made that you wish you hadn't made. <laughs> When drunk, for example, you know? Okay, yeah. I don't I mean, I don't know. I guess there's some, for sure. But I, I wasn't a huge drunk dialer. You know, that was not okay, my... Okay, it's just, it's just an example. But right. um, think about, you know, the times when you knew you shouldn't have done X and you did it anyway. But no one really had to know about it. Maybe one or two people knew, but the world didn't know. And you could almost pretend it wasn't happening. Right. Right. And... So, I mean, I think that when you see that guy just so blatantly self-destructive, just, you know, in your mind, he's he's being blatantly self-destructive. Who who really knows? Um, but when you see that, I, I mean, I do think that it probably taps into some memory for you of times when you were self-destructive and you hit it and it makes you angry that he's not hiding it. Maybe so. So, like, what's the proper response? I mean, is it, it? Do you think that there's a lack of compassion in my response? I mean, or my my reaction to this stuff? I mean, I find myself at odds. I, I think it's very. I think it's very common. What your react? You know, I just think that your reaction is very common. I just think that we all need to change the way we think about it because it's not really an issue of. I don't really think it's about finding compassion. I don't think it's really about judging. I don't think any of those things that people are talking about are really what matters. I think what matters is that there's a major problem in this country with obesity, and it's getting worse and worse, and as a country, it's making us weaker. Um, Truly. And we're spreading it to the whole world, so it's making the world weaker. I mean, it's making health insurance costs rise. It's making um, diseases 
we have more diabetes and, you know, untold other medical conditions because of this. We're hurting our children, et cetera. So I don't really look at it anymore on an individual basis as much, I mean, as much as I used to. I see it more as, a, as this global concern that needs to be addressed, not necessarily person by person, but in a, you know, kind of grand way. So, so what you're saying is that you I mean, don't think I, we should all be walking around slapping the food out of obese people's hands. That's not the solution. I mean, I think we should be slapping the food industry. Well, that's it. I mean, this is the part of it that gets me so worked up is that, you know, there's so much, you know, I don't want to sound too uh, certain of my own mind, but I think it's safe to say, and tell me if you agree, that generally speaking, the food science that we have today is pretty good. We know what's bad for us and we generally know what's good for us. And we're doing such a terrible job of informing people and it's happening in the name of profit. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I do think that there are, um, you know, someone like you or someone like me, we're going to read the book. We're going to find, you know, we're going to look into this. We're going to learn about it because we feel motivated to, and and we know that there's a problem that the food industry is corrupt and everything. But there are people in this country who just don't know, and they believe what they're told because why wouldn't they? And and when they're told, yeah, eat this much meat and this much dairy and at least two thousand calories a day. I mean you know, then they do it. Or if nothing is available to them except fast food, and they've been eating fast food for many generations at this point, um, that's what they're going to do. Yes, so there is a lack of awareness. But there's another problem, which is people who are aware and are still not eating the way they're supposed to be eating. So then I think what we're running into is psychology, you know, um, if, if you're educated, like you said, there's a lot of good food science. I agree. Um, if you really want to know how to eat, you can learn. But then why are there people who know and yet are still, I mean, they, they know that they're sacrificing their health and their appearance, and yet they choose every day unhealthy food over their health and their appearance. So what is that? That's not lack of awareness. That's something deeper. Right. Yeah, I mean, that, that happens all the time. It's the same reason people smoke, I mean, right? Everybody knows it's bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing, and it, it's really, um, it's gratifying to me that finally um, the food industry and the tobacco industry are being compared. Right. That did not used to be the case. That's relatively recent. That's very recent. Actually. I've been making that argument. And, I've been making that argument for years, that especially with regard to, um, children's food and the way that uh, food products are marketed to kids that are like knowingly unhealthy, I think that's really sinister because, you know, no, no one's more defenseless in this game than, than kids. And if it's like, right. you know, that drives me nuts. So uh, I guess this is like probably a good time to ask you or at least to start to discuss, uh, you know, your own situation. I mean, it sort of begs the question, uh, does the author of, has the author of Skinny ever battled weight issues? I mean, have you ever been super overweight or anything like that? I've never been overweight, but I've had other eating issues throughout my most of my life, and um, I guess disordered eating and body image issues. And it's always been it's kind of my Achilles heel. So I was always really ashamed of that 
for years I was really ashamed of that. I felt like I'm smart, I'm educated, I should be above this. This is a, you know, this stuff is like a disease for 15-year-old girls. This is ridiculous. Um, and so I never, I was, I was pretty tight-lipped about it for a long time. I mean, I don't think I was fooling anyone. Everybody probably knew, but um, everybody who was close to me probably knew. But I still, I felt, I felt very ashamed. And, um, you know, I, it would, the, the disorder, if you want to call it, that would manifest in all kinds of different ways. But um, what was the disorder? What was it? Some, was it something specific? I mean, was it bulimia, anorexia, or was it just kind of like? Oh, it was kind of a little of everything, but like I said, it would just manifest in different ways at different times. Like sometimes it would be restricting calories. Sometimes it would be, um, you know, constantly working out, you know, whatever it was. But um, at some point in my early adulthood, I looked around and I realized I am like really not the only one, you know, whether someone is obese or anorexic or, you know, an obsessive dieter or whatever, it seemed to me like almost everyone I knew had issues with food or issues with their body or, you know, both. And that was what really intrigued me to realize, I mean, it didn't make me feel any better to realize I wasn't alone, but it definitely made me interested. And once that occurred to me, that um, everybody had something surrounding, you know, like everybody had some issue with food or their bodies. I really wanted to study it. I really wanted to write about it. I mean, you know, you're a fiction writer. You know what I mean when I say study. I wanted to get in there and kind of get to the other end of it, not in a scientific sense, but I wanted to observe. And so to bring this back around to, to your question about my research, that was when I decided to go to fat camp because I thought, um, these places are microcosms of the diet industry. Well, yeah, and what are they? I mean, what were these kids like? I mean, give me like a snapshot of these of these kids. What age group? Male female ratio? They were, it was. Um, there were. I mean, it, they were eight to eighteen. There were more girls than boys, and with a variety of backgrounds and personalities. I mean, there, there wasn't really a type. Um, some of them were there because they wanted to be. Some of them were there because their parents wanted them to be. It was really a mix. There were some kids there on scholarship. Um, on scholarship? There were, there were, yeah, like some kids who couldn't afford it who were there. Right. Anyway, there were kids who um, had 15 pounds to lose and others who had a couple hundred, you know. Oh my God! And I mean, did you fall for any of these? I mean, not fall for any of these kids, but you must have just been brokenhearted by a lot of these kids, right? I mean, is there's a lot of. Sad... Uh, I mean, some of the time I was like, it's weird. You you, you know, in the, in the in the first days, I I was I felt like really sad about that and about them and everything. But then as time went on, I mean, I was living with them and. It, it changes, <laughs> you know, that, that empathy changes when you're living with them and you have to tell them what to do and they're a pain in the ass sometimes and, um, you know, they're, they're kids. And to, honestly, there was, there was some, something that was really amazing was that because everybody was overweight, because, you know, body stuff was almost off the table, or at least at least the bar was set differently than it is in the real world. They just became, they were just regular kids. Back in their environments, they may have been the fat kids, but at camp, it was, it was like everything was shifted. Sure. So they were just kids, and I, I lived with the oldest girls. They were the, 
the teenage girls, high school girls. And um, some of the time they were super fun. And some of the time they were moody and hormonal and awful, you know. Yeah, what is it? I mean, honestly, what it I mean, this is an interesting experience and especially interesting to me because I have a 10-month-old daughter and, you know, it, it, immediately, as soon as you even know you're having a girl, I'm, my mind immediately flashes forward to adolescence and I try to imagine what is this going to be like and then I remember uh, my sisters when they went through that, when they were, you know, I just remember the house was crazy and what was it like to be living with a bunch of teenage girls in a, I'm assuming, some sort of camp dorm environment? Um, is it scary? Sometimes we were all painting each other's nails and doing each other's hair and talking about everything. And then other times it was like they were all in a big fight, you know? Um, and I think that that's, that's being a teenage girl. I mean, I remember being the same way. It's like the, your moods are, are up and down constantly, you know? And they were always, I mean, you know, and also they, they didn't always really want to be there. Um, so that was tough. They missed home. They were sick of the food. All the typical teenage stuff that you would, you know, they would feel that way anywhere, not just at a weight loss camp. Right. Wow. It's just, it just, it frightens me, just that energy level. But I guess, it, you know, and then what about the guys, to be fair? I mean, what are teenage boys like? I guess they're just all punching each other and like, you know. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't have as much interaction with them but I did teach them water aerobics. Uh, <laughs> sure, that was, I'm sure that was a big hit. <laughs> oh, yeah, they loved it. Um, there weren't, you know, there just, there weren't a lot of them. So, I don't know. I mean, they, they you know, and again, like, there, there were a couple of boys there who hardly had any weight to lose at all, and then there was one who had been in a wheelchair. I mean, he was, like, 450 pounds or something. Okay. So it was a range. Well, now, and what about income bracket? And, and I mean, this is something, of, this is an, an element to the story that we didn't talk about earlier, and I think it needs needs to at least be mentioned, is the fact that, you know, I think a lot of the problem can be cultural, and a lot of the, a lot of the problem is rooted in access. I mean, the, Eating well is is more expensive, and getting access to farmers markets and organic produce and all the stuff that uh, you know we know is good for us isn't necessarily something that's you can just snap your fingers and do. Uh, did you was there? Did you notice that well, most of the kids? There's also the issue of supply and demand, and and when they're not demanding it, no one's supplying it. You that's know, true. so in the Mississippi Delta, for example which is, like, really bad. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a lot of obesity. Um, yeah, they don't have farmer's markets. They have a lot of fast food places. And that's what the people want. That's what they're asking for. Yeah, and, and, then, um, and you try to take it away. You try to mention that it might be, be bad for, for people. And then people get, I think people get fiercely angry and protective. Like, there's something deeply emotional and deeply connected to a person's sense of identity. Uh, what they eat is is deeply emotional and deeply connected to who they think they are. Is that correct? Yeah, and um, yeah. Well, and also, you know, people get upset when you try to take their toys away or their drugs. You right, know, and right. honestly, there are a lot of conservative politicians who aren't helping matters. Um, you know, uh, Sarah Palin's comment on her. I don't even, is that show still on there? That Alaska show? No, um, no, thank God. Yeah, she made a comment. Um, 
that, you know, she was, I don't know, she was making some dessert with her kids and she was saying like, Michelle Obama doesn't want us to eat this, but you know, just almost like, but you know, it's like, we're the fun, we're the fun party. We're the fun Republicans. And, um, so we're going to eat junk food and, um, that's not a good message. No. And it's like, it, that, that's the thing that really pisses me off. I got to say is that, you know, like I can't think of anything more. Uh, benign than Michelle Obama going around to like elementary and junior high schools and like encouraging kids to like play outside more and like eat their vegetables. And somehow yeah, this is. In fact, in fact, her, you know, her program is so benign that it needs more oomph. It yeah. certainly doesn't need to be cut down. Uh, it drives me nuts. And, and the politi- you know, yeah. politicization, is that a word of it? You know, it's just, it, it's an asinine to me. And, uh, you know, I guess the question that, that that comes to mind at the end of all this is, what's the answer? I mean, is there? I'm, I'm sure it's not simplistic, but I mean, what is to be done? Uh, do enough? Do people just have to start croaking uh, of heart attacks at 40, and then there's just an epidemic of this, and then finally people wake up? Do we have to go through this dark period before we, you know, see the light? Or what? What, what is to be done? Do you have any idea? No, I. I don't know. I wish I knew. I would shout it from the rooftop. But um, what I, I there's this great book called um, The End of Overeating, and uh, in it he talks about how um, you know the way that people started to we like we were just talking about the way that people started talking about the tobacco industry some years ago took a long time to catch on. Because it was decades ago that we found out that smoking is addictive and causes lung cancer. But it took a long time before people started to see cigarettes as gross. Right. Um, and I find that sort of encouraging, sort of discouraging, because in my opinion, we need to do something fast. But I at least want to know that something is going to to get better. And if it takes a long time, that's understandable. It's a, ma- it's a massive problem. I hope it doesn't take decades, but people need to get grossed out, I think. Well, and yeah, and people also, I mean, I could go on and on about this, but I think there's also an ecological element to the story is that like food choice not only has personal health implications, but what we eat also have, uh, also has deep ecological consequences. And I think you're, you know, I don't know. It's, it seems kind of tangential, but if, uh, as China and India, you know, their populations rise up into the middle class, the first thing they often want is beef. They want steak. They want different foods. They want Western foods. Uh, you know, if that's what you want to call them. And, you know, all of a sudden you're clear cutting more forests so that more cattle can graze. And, um, that's not, I, I don't know. I just don't feel like that's, you start to talk about that stuff and people start to say, uh, you know, you're infringing upon my personal liberty, but I think that the consequences uh, of inaction are going to really infringe on people's personal liberties. And well, a lot of time when people complain about their personal liberties being taken away, they don't understand that what they're saying is what they're doing is spewing the rhetoric of people who are taking their personal liberties away. I mean, if they're going to do, they're, they're saying that is doing the bidding of the food industry. Yeah, well, that's it. And then, you know, the other thing, too, I guess, is that maybe what I'm advocating is that people exercise their personal liberty and and choose maybe different things because they understand what's at stake or I don't know. You know, it's just it's frustrating. It's a big problem. It's going to be with us for a while. And hopefully, you know, the the uh, the facts have their day and people start to think a little bit more sanely about this stuff and, and act a little bit more sanely. But, um, 
Anyhow, before I let you go, I want to hear a little bit about uh, your childhood, you know, where you're from, how you became a writer. I'm always fascinated to hear people's story. Like, how did you get into this racket? Was it something that sort of happened, uh, you know, as you became an adult? Or was it, you know, were you one of those kids who was like writing novels when you were eight? I was one of those kids who was writing novels when I was eight. I've been writing since I was so little. And when I was seven, I remember writing a 24-page story, and it was called Shauna and the Magic Quilt. Um, And it was about a girl named Shauna who had a magic quilt. Um, So, yeah, ever since then, I've been writing. Mostly I wrote poetry in high school, but then towards the end of high school, I started writing short stories, and I did both in college, and then I went right to grad school out of college. I always knew I wanted to do it. There was no question. So you you were in Boulder as an undergrad? Yeah, I um, I grew up in Boston, but then I, yeah, I went to Boulder, and I studied creative writing. I also studied psychology. Were you a hippie? Uh, no, not successfully. Not successfully. <laughs> I had like a year. It was like a year, and I was. It was a great year, but it just it sort of petered out after that. Well, I mean, look, I had Birkenstocks, okay, and yeah, I, of um, yeah, and I went to fish shows, and but um, but no, I I. I don't know what I was, but um, I, I definitely wasn't one of those kids with dreadlocks on the hill with a dog on a hemp leash. Right. Neither, yeah, neither was I. I had a dog, but I just, I was, I was, I always sort of like wondered why you just didn't get a collar and a leash for the dog. Like somehow it was like nicer to the dog to, to you know, garrote the thing with a rope. You know, it was, it was just, yeah, it was really troubling that somehow a collar was like too restrictive and against nature, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So where'd you go to grad school? Um, I went to the University of Montana and got my MFA. I loved it. It was, you know, those were the best couple of years. I, I absolutely loved it. And I know there's a lot of um, controversy surrounding whether or not it's useful to get an MFA and all that. But I thought it was, I thought I got a, an excellent education and I wouldn't have done it differently. You know, if I could go back, I'd do it the same because... I read so much. I learned about who to read and how to read. And um, I've, I mean, I've never written so much in my life as I did in those two years. So I feel like, I feel as though I doubled my knowledge base just from um, doing that MFA program. I absolutely loved it. So do you like Montana? Did you enjoy Montana better than Colorado? Um, yeah, I, I like Montana better than Colorado because... Montana's a little more chill. Colorado has gotten very crowded and expensive, you know. Um, well, you're talking to somebody who lives in Los Angeles, so Colorado still seems pretty bucolic to me, but I get what no, you're saying. No, I, I hear you. I hear you. But as far as those western states go, I mean, I also lived in Wyoming for a while, and I loved that, too. That was very quiet and sort of desolate. Where in Wyoming? Uh, central Wyoming in a town called Thermopolis that has the world's largest mineral hot springs. So what were you doing there? That's like the middle of no, I mean, Wyoming is really, it's really the middle of nowhere. It really is the middle of nowhere. Um, at the time, a friend of mine had bought a house there, which is a whole other story, but she wasn't living there. She was living in Mississippi and, uh, she told my boyfriend at the time and I that we could just live in her place and pay her mortgage, which was $200 a month. Christ. And, since we were both writers, we thought this is probably a pretty good idea. Let's go write our books. Sure. So that's what we did. 
Yeah, I had a sim- I had a similar situation when I was uh, you know just out of school, where one of my buddies was buying houses and flipping them. He was in real estate, and he had this old house up in Longmont, north of Boulder, and he let me live in it for a summer. And it was, it was sort of a trip. It was this big. Oh wow! It's like an eight bedroom house or an eight room house, I should say, but a big old, you know, probably built in the nineteen thirties or nineteen forties, and you know, the, there there had been a married couple that had lived in it for years and years and years and years, their entire lives. And then I guess they died and now this house was vacated and I lived there alone with like no furniture. So like not only was it an eight room house all to me, uh, but it was also empty and uh, it was very bizarre. It was, it was odd. That's wild. Yeah. It was a weird summer. You know, you were there by yourself? I was there by myself and there was a yard out back that was probably the length of at least half a football field. So it was on this wow. big, this big, huge, you know, uh, lot. I mean, it was in a neighborhood, but the lots were just gigantic. I mean, this is kind of country living, you know, at least, especially in its origins. And, uh, yeah. And I was, you know, I had, and of course I had like a, a fucking typewriter. Like that was where I was in my life. I was like 23 and <laughs> like the late nineties. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, had? yeah. Like I, every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. Like I was like, I think I should have a typewriter, you know, instead of a computer. Cause I'll focus more or whatever. But that quickly faded when I realized that like editing on a typewriter was an extreme pain in the ass, you know, by comparison. Yeah. But, yeah, that was my summer typing uh, in this empty house, and it smelled <laughs> smelled like old people, and you know it was weird. And then I would hang. And, Go ahead. I mean, did you feel like an old school writer? Was that the idea? It was just you wanted to. No, I just felt I just I felt anxious, and I eventually, with a little bit of perspective, felt like an idiot. I mean, that really was it. I was like. <laughs> I thought that I would. And then one good thing, one good thing I can say in my defense is that I, whenever I do stupid stuff like that, I'm usually pretty quick to start uh, realizing it. And so then it became sort of a a joke and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then eventually I got myself a computer. There you go. And that's where it all began, right? That was it. That's my origin story. And then just to kind of, just to kind of put a finer point on it and really let you know, uh, what, you know, what a loser I was that summer. I said, I remember, cause I didn't know a soul in Longmont. I was working in Boulder and then I would come home at night and I would walk my dog and then I would go to this coffee shop and this coffee Were shop. Were you working as a pizza delivery boy? No, 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 no. This was like my first real job. I was working at Warren Miller films in Boulder and I would drive home and, uh, I would let my dog out. I had a border collie named Merlin, great dog who's, who's no longer with us, but uh, you know, he was home alone all day, which was a stressor for me because those dogs need to run. And I would, I would come home and we'd go for a walk and I would wind up wanting to just be out of that house. So I'd go to this coffee shop that was in a house. It was, I forget the name of it. I want to say it was like Luna or something like vaguely hippie-ish. And I would go there and sit outside and there were these like goth teenagers from Longmont who were there every single night as was I essentially during the week. And so like we became buddies and like, that's who I hung with. <laughs> it was, uh, wow. Yeah. Special. So you and the goth teenagers in a house that was sort of a coffee shop Correct. or a coffee shop that was sort of a house sitting on the porch and like me bumming smokes from them, like that kind of scene. And then you'd go back to your eight room mansion and, and Fire up the typewriter. Fire up the typewriter. There was a moth infestation uh, of the house at some point. It was all very strange, you know, and it was it was short-lived. It was only for the summer. But, you know, when somebody offers you a place to live for the summer and you're a young writer, you take it. You're like, sure, you know, that sounds perfect. Yeah, uh, yeah. 
So it was an experience, but, uh, you know, back to you, uh, Wyoming and then from Wyoming to New York. No, I've, I've sort of zigzagged all over. I mean, I spent, I was in Boulder, then I was in Montana and then I, I was briefly in, in Texas and then Wyoming and then California and then Rhode Island and then New York. Christ. And do you have writers in your family? I mean, is this part of your blood, you know, your situation? No, not at all. Um, I mean, my dad, my dad's a doctor. My mom, uh, has her own business. She's a party planner. Um, I mean, I, I think that my dad is a really good writer, but he's not a writer by choice. You know, he writes for medical journals, but, um, he sort of has in my mind a writer's sensibility. I've always thought, I've always thought he'd be good at it if he wanted to do it. But, uh, no, nobody in my family is a professional And you have, you have siblings? I do. My little brother's a lawyer, and my older sister um, is a real estate agent. So I'm I am definitely the wild card. And you guys were and you guys were all raised in Massachusetts. Yeah. Like outside of Boston well, or in the city? Mostly, yes. What's that? I said outside of Boston or in the city. Um, just outside of Boston in the suburbs. Okay. And what was that like? Did you like Boston? You know, I don't feel any connection to Boston anymore because when I graduated from high school, my family moved to Texas. Everybody's in Texas now and for various reasons. And uh, so when I go home, I mean, always, even when I went home from college, I wasn't really going home. I was going to Texas. And now, you know, it's been, I mean, they moved in 1997. They've been there for a really long time. So now Texas feels more like home to me. I mean, if anywhere besides New York is home, it's Texas, not Boston. When I do go back to Boston, I don't have many friends there anymore. Um, I don't have, you know, my family's home belongs to someone else. And I don't feel any connection to it. I was just there on book tour, and it was almost as if I'd never lived there. Yeah, I'm kind of the same way. My, You know, I grew up in in the Midwest, and my folks, you know, left there. Uh, when I was in college, and so I don't get, get back there very often, though my sister still lives back there. But, um, you know, when your family doesn't live there, then it's not really, you know, it's hard to it's hard to really feel rooted there. But uh, yeah. what about Texas? I mean, Texas is a strange place, is it not? Or what, what do you think of it? Yeah, Texas is a strange place. Um, my family mostly lives in Dallas. So my parents and my sister and her family live in Dallas. Um I tried living there right after grad school. I lived there for about six months and I went crazy and I, I left and fled to Wyoming. Um, it's not for me, but they are very happy there. And I, now that I don't, you know, now that I don't have to live there, I love going because it's like a retreat for me. I mean, going home to your hometown, I imagine would be a little bit stressful. Like you want to be with your family, but you also feel like you need to catch up with all your high school friends and everything. I never went through that. And when I go home, it's like I can really just dedicate myself to spending time with my family, which is great because they're really far away from me. So I don't see them enough. So I, I, when I get to Dallas, I feel really good. I'm always really happy to be there. And um, it feels like home. It feels comfortable, but it's not a place I'd want to live. Yeah, no, I was you in know, I was in Dallas happened. just like uh, back in uh, I guess it was early February. I went for, I went to the Super Bowl. I'm a huge Packers fan, and uh, I got a ticket at the last minute and went. And that was the first time I'd ever spent any time there. And it was it was really brief. I mean, I was you know I drove into Deep Ellum. I'm assuming you've been there. Yeah, I went out to right. a bar. I went out to a, like some sort of biker bar there, and then you know then I was staying at this. Uh, 
because we, you know, everything happened so last minute. We were staying at this Howard Johnson's off the highway, right by the new stadium. And that was sort of my experience of it. I mean, it was, it was a very limited Dallas, but it seems like it's pretty spread out. You know, it's, it's kind of a, yeah, it's, it's more like a collection of suburbs than a city. And I mean, you're used to driving. You live in LA, but I hate driving. I get a lot of car accidents, so I I'm very happy to just be in New York. <laughs> so wait, how many car accidents have you been in? Have you been in several? Oh, I don't even want to rehash them, Brad. It's really bad. I've had some doozies, including one when I was moving from Texas to Wyoming, um, and that was a really nasty one. I lost. Uh, I had got like nerve damage in my arm and I didn't have use of my right hand for eight months. So Christ. try writing a novel with one hand. Well, gee, yeah, good thing you live in New York. I want you on the subway. Yeah. Or I in mean, a taxi. It's really, New York is really a dream city for me because I absolutely hate driving. I feel so uncomfortable driving and I've done plenty of driving. I've crisscrossed the country several times, but, um, you know, I, I would watch out if I was on the road with me. <laughs> well, good to know. We'll, we'll let that serve as fair warning to everybody listening. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I guess on that note, uh, I'll let you go. But it's been great talking to you. I wish you all the best with uh, Skinny and with, uh, you know, your future books. We didn't get into what you're going to be writing, but I assume there's going to be something else down the road. And uh, whenever it happens, we'll have to get you back on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, everybody, there you have it. That's it. That's the program. That is Diana Speckler. What a good sport, answering all of my questions. If you want to find her on the web, go to dianaspeckler.com. Speckler is spelled S-P-E-C-H-L-E-R. You can follow her on Twitter, at Diana Speckler. She's got a Facebook presence. She's got a website called bodyconfessions.com. You can check that out. And then her books, the two novels. The first one is called Who by Fire. And then the most recent one, of course, is called Skinny both from Harper Perennial, both available wherever books are sold. This show you can find on the web at otherpeoplepod.com, on Twitter at otherpeoplepod. I'm on Twitter at Brad Listy, and uh, you know, the show has a Facebook presence, blah, 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 all of it. If you want to email me, letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Before I go, I want to talk uh, f- you know, first about a little bit of trivia. I thought I'd share some trivia with you. I was just reading something online and uh, within this article, it mentioned that the inventor of paper is a guy named Kai Lun. Kai Lun, he's a Chinese guy from back in like the first or second century. He was a eunuch. I just learned that. That sort of struck me as an interesting bit of trivia. Next time you pick up a piece of paper, remember the guy who invented it was a eunuch. And then the last uh, kind of related thought, trying to tie things back to the front of the show, this whole animal thing, the zoo, the private zoo in Ohio, these escaped animals the Bigfoot thing that I was talking about, this whole idea of wild animals on the loose in areas that they're not supposed to be in, or this whole collision between wild animals and civilians, wild animals in residential areas. I remember this uh, this story, and I actually cut it out, and it's among my papers, it's among my notes, from the Boulder Daily Camera several years ago. And it's about this mountain lion that wandered down from the hills in Boulder, a hungry mountain lion in search of food wanders down into this town, into this residential area, winds up in these people's backyard, a family, and it smells something. This mountain lion smells something in the house, and it winds up entering the home through a dog door. It wiggles into the house. It you know, kind of squeezes itself in through this dog door and finds a bag of dry cat food, I believe. 
or a bag of dog food in like the laundry room, it eats that and then it goes wandering around the house. And thank goodness this family was not there at the time, but their cat was. The family cat named Mungit or Mungit, M-U-N-G-I-T, a 15-year-old cat was at home and was eaten by this mountain lion. So I've always like liked this story. I think the reason it stuck to me is that I've always been able to kind of, uh, you know, attach myself to it from a POV perspective. I've always seen this entire story unfold through the eyes of poor Munjit. Imagine this 15-year-old cat who's had a good life, who's at home, who's 15, who's lying on the couch. There's a beam of sunlight. It's a sunny day in Boulder, a beam of sunlight cutting in through the window, cutting in through the curtains. Munjit's on the couch. He's lying in that sunlight. He's sleeping. He's taking a nap. He hears a noise. He stands up. He kind of yawns, stretches, looks, and there's a mountain lion in the living room. So on that note, I will close. I don't really know what the point of all that is. Maybe it's just to remind you that like, you know, things could be worse. Things are going to be okay. There's not a mountain lion in your living room. Is there? I don't think so. And you're not a eunuch, are you? So there you go. Two good reasons for optimism. Have an enjoyable day. Take good care of yourself and take deep breaths. <laughs>